Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. What did James Madison mean by dual sovereignty and the sovereignty of the states or the United States? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. But of course, you can throw a few pennies my way at YouTube by clicking on the Super Thanks button if you're there. You can click on the Support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can go to Spotify for podcasters. You can subscribe there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Leave a text review wherever you can. Leave a five-star review wherever you can. That way you help get more ears and eyes on the show. If you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment for the algorithm. It also helps. So anything you can do to get more people listening to the show is much appreciated. And again, send me those show requests and let me know what you want to hear. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day, and that is James Madison and his idea of sovereignty or dual sovereignty. What you often hear, and this, this actually goes back to secession. What you often hear from people is that, well, you know, James Madison wasn't in favor of secession. James Madison didn't support secession. James Madison said it was illegal. James Madison was against it. James Madison believed in the sovereignty of the United States. But James Madison really didn't say that. Now, he did actually write a very interesting essay on sovereignty in 1835, near the end of his life. And he did this in reaction to John C. Calhoun's position and others that sovereignty could not be divided. Because, as we know... And the Federalist, Madison postulates that there is a dual sovereignty in America. There is, uh, we're going to divide sovereignty out. This is something Madison essentially came up with to try to sell the Constitution to people on both sides of the issues. Remember, in 1787 and 1788, when the Constitution was going through ratification and Madison was trying to get the document through, whether it was New York or Virginia, he had to try to sell the document to two different factions of people, which is funny because, of course, he talks about factions in Federalist 10. But he had to get the document through two different factions of people. One group thought that the Constitution was going to eliminate the states. It was going to consolidate all power in the center, that it was going to reduce the states to nothing, and so they should not ratify it because it created a national government. That's one group. This is the group that's often called the Anti-Federalists or I call them the opponents of the document because they weren't really anti-federalists, they're real federalists. They wanted a federal republic. On the other side, you had those that really wanted to have some type of stronger national government, quote-unquote. They wanted a stronger central authority. And so he had to try to sell the document to those people as well. 
because in in his in their mind, if anything maintained what they had in the Articles of Confederation, then that would be a bad document. So he had to try to persuade those who were wavering because maybe it wasn't strong enough nationally. It didn't create a strong enough central authority that this thing actually did create some kind of new sovereignty, some kind of new central government that was going to be much stronger than the central government under the Articles of Confederation. And so therefore, he comes up with this idea, well, the United States is sovereign in these areas. So you have the states are sovereign in these areas and the central government is sovereign in these areas. But he creates a great big mess in doing this. And I think this is what Calhoun and others were pointing out. You can't divide sovereignty out because then you don't really have any sovereignty to begin with. Sovereignty cannot be divided. So Madison in 1835, and let me say this, you create a great big mess because if you divide sovereignty out, then there's never really a conclusive argument on either side, that this is sovereign or this is sovereign. Right? So you create a big mess. You've actually created a, a Frankenstein that um, will eventually rear its ugly head, and I think that was the debate in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, and the 60s. What is... Where is sovereignty located in the United States? Now, Madison in 1835 takes up his pen and he writes this little piece on sovereignty. It's an essay on sovereignty. And what he's trying to do is defend his position of dual sovereignty. But there are some interesting parts of this. Number one, the people that say that Madison believed in the sovereignty of the people and that no sovereignty of the states are mistaken. Now, because he does call the people the states, essentially. And he also, of course, will say that there's a people of the United States in some ways, or there's a United States, and the people of the states, and then the people of the United States. It, he gets into a great big, again, confusing mess in all of this. But Madison did believe that the United States government was a compact between people of the states. It's a confederation a federation of the people of the states. He says this in the Federalist Essays, by the way. But he does believe the states are the building blocks. He does, however, think that sovereignty can be divided by the people of the states because he's going to use a very specific example on how this actually worked, other than the U.S. Constitution. So I want to get into this essay because, again, I think there are some problems with this, but it does answer Madison's position on these issues. It's not a long essay uh, at all, so I, I want to cover it. And these are the kind of things I do, by the way, in McClanahan Academy classes, where I take a primary document like this, I go through it, I give you my commentary on it, what I think, and again, related to the historical record, and give you some historical examples and how this would work or didn't work. Uh, this is how McClanahan Academy classes work when I do the reading seminars. I have other classes that aren't like this that are uh, designed to be like you would have, say, in a, in a college environment where... I talk about the actual history of itself, not through a primary document, but just the, the general information. I do those as well. So this is James Madison, Essay on Sovereignty, December 1835. He says, It has hitherto been understood that the supreme power, that is, the sovereignty of the people of the states, was in its nature divisible. And it was, in fact, divided, according to the Constitution of the, of the U-States, between the states and their united and the states in their individual capacities that as the states in their highest sovereign character were competent to surrender of, of their whole sovereignty and make themselves on consul state so they surrender a part and retain as they have to put to, to uh, the other part, excuse me, forming thus a mixed government 
with the division of its attributes as marked out in the Constitution. Now, this again, this is sloppy because he's he didn't really publish this thing. He's kind of he's ruminating here on some things. So he says it has hitherto been understood. All right, so people understand this, and I'm going to read what he says and and then uh, interpret it. It has hitherto been understood. People understand that the supreme power, supreme power, that is the sovereignty of the people of the states. The sovereignty of the people of the states. So the sovereignty in the United States is the people of the states. Not the people in the aggregate, but the people of the states. So this actually throws out this one people idea. Madison is not in agreement with that. There's no one people of the United States. It's the people of the states because he makes a clear distinction between the United States and the states. So he's saying the people of the states. He's not saying the people of the United States. He's saying the people of the states. So sovereignty is within the people. Now, Calhoun would not have disagreed with this. There is a sovereignty in the people of the states. The people make the state. And this is where Madison gets a little confusing on these things. The people make the state. The state itself, the boundaries of the state, is not sovereign. The people of the state are. So therefore, the people of the state in convention, of course, ratified the Constitution. The states and the people, though, are one. There's, there's no difference between these things. So when we talk about South Carolina, we're talking about the people of South Carolina. And the people of South Carolina are sovereign. And they can do or undo the Constitution as they wish. We know this because, of course, when you look at Article 5 of the Constitution, the people of the states in the states can undo the entire Constitution. We also know that in Article 7, it says the Constitution is a Constitution between the states, so ratifying the same. The people of the states. The people of the states, right? The people of these states, which is the states, they make up the state. That's the issue. You have people being confused about this because they're trying to argue that, of course, usually that secession is not legal. It's the people. There's one people, all these other kind of things. They just don't really understand what Madison means by this. And they use James Madison a lot. So we have to get into Madison. What did Madison mean by these things? Was in its nature divisible. So the sovereignty of the people is divisible. Right? So he's saying this understood this is the case. And it was divided according to the Constitution of the United States. So he's saying the Constitution is clear that the sovereignty of the people of the states was divided between the states and their united capacity. So we have a, a sovereignty in the states in the united capacity, which would be the central government. So he's saying that central government has sovereignty. And the states in their individual capacities. So we have states, sovereignty of states, with the people. He's saying states, the people of the states. The states are sovereign. So we have a central government that's sovereign and states that are sovereign. It's the people of the states. In each case, though, is what he's saying. As the states in their highest sovereign character were competent to a surrender of, of their whole sovereignty. The states in their highest sovereign character, the people of the states, were competent to surrender their whole sovereignty and make themselves... so that they surrender a part and retain as they have the other part, forming thus a mixed government. So, they give some sovereignty to the center, and they keep some sovereignty for themselves. The people of the states do this, right? The states are still sovereign. The central government is still sovereign. So that's his argument. We have a mixed constitution. The states are sovereign. The central government is sovereign. Who did it, though? The people of the states. They did it. 
right? So this is essentially the same argument he makes in The Federalist. But he's, he's outlined this. This has been understood since 1788. So here we are, you know, f- almost 50 years later. This is what people have understood. But he says, of late another doctrine has occurred, which supposes that sovereignty is in its nature indivisible, that the societies denominated states and forming the constitutional compact of the United States, here it is, it's a compact fact. People say it's not a compact. It is a compact. The states forming a compact of the United States acted as indivisible sovereignties. And consequently, that the sovereignty of each remains as absolute and entire as it was then or could be at any time. So he's saying, I have, it's been accepted that my position is correct. But then we have this new position, which has come up of late, that you have indivisible sovereignty. The states cannot relinquish their sovereignty. That we have a compact, which Madison wouldn't disagree with, by the way. And the United States, and they, the states acted as individual, indivisible sovereignties. Right, so, and that they retain that sovereignty forever. He's saying he doesn't believe this. He's going to get into why, but he doesn't believe that. He says, This discord of opinions arises from a propensity in many to prefer the use of theoretical guides, technical language to the divisions or depositories of political power as laid down in the Constitutional Charter, which expressly assigns certain powers of government, which are the attributes of sovereignty to the U.S., and even declares a practical supremacy of them over the powers reserved to the states. A supremacy essentially involving that of exposition as well as of execution. For a law could not be supreme in one depository of power if the final exposition of it belonged to another. So, he's saying the problem here is we have this dispute because we have the supremacy clause. Right? So what does the supremacy clause mean? If you have a supremacy clause then you can't really have a, a, a sovereign. You can't have it because one would have to be supreme, right? So that would mean it has supreme sovereignty and the others don't have it. So it declares a practical supremacy of them over the powers reserved to the states. Supremacy essentially involving that of exposition as well as execution. So the supremacy clause would thwart this whole idea of state sovereignty. He's saying that's where that's the problem here. Right? We've got people running around saying the Supremacy Clause. So Madison isn't really in agreement with that position, nor is he really in agreement with the Indivisible, uh, indivisible Sovereignty Agreement as well, or the position. So he wants to settle this dispute. We've got those saying the Supremacy Clause, which is the argument that the nationalists will resort to in the 1860s. And if you go on to social media and you say, look, I think secession's Legal, supremacy clause, supremacy clause, supremacy. So Madison's saying, all right, so this is the argument being used. On the other side, we have the people that are saying we have sovereign states, indivisible sovereign states. Madison is saying what we've always understood is that we have divided sovereignty. (laughs) So the supremacy clause really doesn't work in that either, right? We have certain things where the central government supreme and certain things where the state governments are supreme. And that... You can't, the central authority can't override the states where they're supreme. So he says, in settling the question between these rival claims of power, it is proper to keep in mind that all power in a just and free government is derived from compact. So it's derived from the compact itself. That's where all power comes from. That where the parties of the compact are competent to make it, and where the compact creates a government and arms it only with a moral power, 
not only with a moral power, I'm sorry, but with the physical means of executing it, and it's immaterial by what its name is called. And it is immaterial by what its name is called. So, we, have a, we keep in mind that power and just and free governments is derived from compact between the parties that are competent to make it, which would be the people of the states, and where that compact creates a government, which would be it could be a state government. If it's the people of a state, there's a compact between the people there. Or a central government, the people of the states. The states themselves create the compact. And it has a moral power, but the physical means of executing it. And he says it's immaterial by what name it's called. Its real character is to be decided by the compact itself, by the nature and extent of the powers it specifies and the obligation imposed on the parties to it. So it doesn't really matter what you call it. It only matters what the powers are there and what those powers are, right? So this is important. You have to look at what the powers are, what the what the people, in this case, the people of the state said the central authority can do and what the states can do. That's how we determine what the power is. We have to look at what it says, right? So this is where he gets into, into dual sovereignty. He's going to start talking about these things. He says, as a ground of compromise, let them, the advocates for states' rights, acknowledge this rule of measuring the federal share of sovereign power under the constitutional compact. Right. So he's saying the people of the states' rights people, which Madison would have been part of that in the 1790s. Right. This is the funniest part about it. Madison is basically taking himself out of that group, but he would have been in that group in the 1790s. Though I think he and Jefferson really did disagree on some things throughout their lives on, on power, what the central authority had. I think Madison was always much more of a nationalist than Jefferson. So they have to the, the states' rights people have to concede that there's a federal share of sovereign power under the constitutional compact. So he's saying you have to concede there's sovereignty in the, in the central authority. So you ha they have to concede that. Now, I would say they don't. I would say you don't have to say there's sovereignty in the center. And he's going to make an argument that there is sovereignty because of what the states do. Now, this is, so I'll get into that in a minute. He makes this argument. And let it be conceded on the other hand, this would be by the supremacy people, that the states are not deprived of it, meaning uh, sovereignty, of that corporate existence and political unity, which would, in the event of a dissolution, voluntary or violent, of the Constitution replace them in the condition of separate communities, that being the condition in which they entered into the compact. So, let the supremacy people recognize that the states are not deprived of their sovereignty because if there was a dissolution, voluntary or violent, well, that's an amazing assertion, isn't it? That there could be a voluntary dissolution of the union? Now, the question would be, well, that means that all the people have to agree to it. All the people have to agree to a dissolution of the Union. And this will probably be Madison's position. But it doesn't mean it's the only position. We know that it never was the only position in the founding generation. Privately, Madison had said this during the ratification process. Privately. He didn't really talk about dissolution at any point during the ratification process at all, publicly. But he did say something about it privately. He said that it was forever, right? A binding forever. However, he's saying right here, that we could have a dissolution. Voluntary, a voluntary dissolution. We can just dissolve this thing. Or a violent dissolution. 
if that happens, if there's a violent dissolution, well, you could say we had a violent dissolution in the 1860s of the Constitution. Did it dissolve the Constitution? No, but you had states leave. However, you could say, well, unionist people, there's a violent dissolution. And it replaces them in the condition of separate communities. This would mean that they're all now separate communities again, and they can do whatever a sovereignty wants. So if there is a dissolution of the union, which is exactly what happened in 1860, at least the entirety of the union as it was in 1859, right? We still had the union, but not with these states, the southern states in it. Then those states would be, they would enter, they would be in the condition in which they entered the compact. They would be sovereign again. So he's actually agreeing with <laughs> with the people of the secession people, right? He's agreeing with them. What would happen here? And what he means by that, and he, he qualifies it in the next kind of half sentence. It's a, it's, a, it's a fragment, but he's trying to qualify what that compact is. The condition of an independent and full sovereignty, as was the effect of the Declaration 1776, which dissolved our connection with the Great, with the Great Britain and an exclusive the states individually to their charter, or I'm sorry, to their character that they, at the formation of the compact. It's kind of a weird sentence. He's... So again, he's saying because what would happen is the states would be just like they were in 1776 with the Declaration, which dissolved their connection with Great Britain. So we had sovereign, individual sovereign states. This is where he would disagree with someone like James Wilson, who would say, we never had that. This, he would disagree with Abraham Lincoln, who would say, we never have that. We never had states outside of the federal government. Madison is saying, we did. We had states outside of the federal government. Now, the new argument, of course, well, that's true. But then the Constitution made it to where they weren't states like that anymore. In some ways, Madison is arguing that position. In some ways. However, he says the states never really were dissolved in that way. They weren't at all. So he says, And the period of our revolution, it was supposed by some that it dissolved the social compact within the colonies and produced a state of nature, which required a naturalization of those who had not participated in the revolution. The question was brought before the Congress at its first session by David Ramsey, who contested the election of William Smith, who, though born in South Carolina, had been absent at the, state of, at the date of independence. The decision was that his birth in the colony made him a member of the society in its new as well as an original state. So he's saying, look, this is an interesting argument, right? So um, if they weren't here when the states, when they were dissolved, uh, then were they still a member of this sovereign political community? Well, he's saying it's been decided in Congress that, that they were, right? If they were born there, they're still a member of that community. They're still a people of that state, right? They're born in the state, so they're the people of that state. This would, of course, lend people to say, there it is, Madison believes in birthright citizenship. Well, I mean, he's saying that with the state. I mean, he's, he's arguing that position. So um, we look at naturalization and other things, but he is talking about naturalization there. If you're not born there, then of course you have to be naturalized, and et cetera, et cetera. So then he says, which of these views of the subject ought to be held the true one is a question of theoretical curiosity, but may be of less practical importance than the zeal of party has ascribed to it. So he's saying this is certainly theoretical curiosity, but it's really not that important. Practical importance really doesn't matter. Is the, are the state sovereign, or the people of the state sovereign, and the central government sovereign? He's saying, you know, practical importance, but it would be of practical importance later on, within about 30 years. It's going to be of practical importance because people are going to press the issue. 
right? And so we have these conversations. We're, and I think Madison is being a little short-sighted in this, and he doesn't really understand what this whole idea of dual sovereignty has done. He says, to go to the bottom of the subject, let us consult the theory which contemplates a certain number of individuals as meeting and agreeing to form one political society in order that the rights, the safety, and the interests of each may be under the safeguard of the whole. So he's saying, let's, let's just play this out here. And he's going to do that. He's, in the rest of this letter, he's going to, or this essay, he's going to play that out. Okay. So he says, the first supposition is that each individual, being previously independent of the others, the compact which is to make them one society must result from the free consent of every individual. So that's one thing, right? You have to have the consent of every individual to make this compact work, right? So we're going to form a society. Everyone's got to, got to agree. He says, but as the objects in view could not be attained, we couldn't get the consent of everyone. If every measure conducive to them required the consent of every member of the society, the theory further supposes either that it was a part of the original compact, that the will of the majority was to be deemed the will of the whole, or this that this was a law of nature resulting from the nature of political society, itself the offspring of the natural wants of man. So he's saying if we couldn't do that, then we're going to go with the will of the majority, right? The will of the majority. So we couldn't get the consent of every, but we're going to go with the will of the majority because that is the nature of political society. So we're going to look at the will of the majority, we couldn't get the consent of everyone. Now, what's interesting about that is that when you start talking about secession, right, leaving, well, we know we didn't have the consent of all to form the Constitution, at least initially. So they said we would have 9 out of 13, which was considered maybe to be a supermajority, but it didn't bind the rest. It's only a Constitution between the states are ratifying the same. The other states were not really part of it. Uh, and this is, how James, this is how Jefferson actually argued, look, let these states do it, and then we hold out. We hold out. Even if nine got it, we hold out. And then we can't really function as a union without all the states involved in it. We can't really function under this way without... So we hold out, and we, we say, well, this is what we want. If you concede, we'll join. So Virginia would have been independent. This is exactly why Edmund Randolph was running around in the Virginia Convention trying to persuade people to ratify the Constitution because he knew that the effect of not ratifying it would leave Virginia as an independent state. See, it would have, it would have seceded at that point. De facto and de jure, it would have done it because it didn't ratify the Constitution. But it also means that secession is, is legal because according to the Articles of Confederation, you have to have unanimous consent to change anything in it. And they didn't have that. You see. So what happened there is they would get around it saying, well, the people of the states, so we'd have to have a unanimous consent of the states, the state legislatures, in other words, but the people of the states were the real sovereign authority and they decided to change it. So they've changed the central authority. The people of the states have, and the people of the states could then withdraw from that and change their central authority somewhere else. This is what Jefferson essentially concedes in his letter to John Taylor of Caroline, which I covered, by the way, in reading Thomas Jefferson at McClanahan Academy, that a scission, as he calls it, would be unwise, but not illegal. You could do it. He says, whatever be the, the hypothesis of the origin of the lex majoris parts, partis, it is evident that it operates as a plenary substitute of the will of the majority of the society, for the will of the whole society, and that the sovereignty of the society is vested in the 
in and exercisable by the majority, may do anything that could be rightfully done by the unanimous concurrence of the members, the reserved rights of individuals in becoming parties to the original compact being beyond the legitimate reach of sovereignty wherever vested or ever viewed. So he's saying the majority can do whatever they want, even if you don't have complete and unanimous consent. Be rightfully done. Well, that he, he underlines rightfully. Well, what is rightfully? That becomes the question. What is a rightful power? What is a just power? Is it coercion? Is it forcing someone to be in this? Is that a rightful power? doesn't really say. The question then presents itself, how far the will of the majority of the society, by virtue of its identity with the will of the society, can divide, modify, or dispose of the sovereignty of the society? In quitting the theoretical guide, a more satisfactory one will perhaps be found, one, in what a majority of the society has, society has done being and been universally regarded as having a had a right to do, and two, what is universally admitted that a majority by virtue of its sovereignty might do if it chose to do it. So, again, he's saying the question is, what are these things that it can do? And he's giving you this theoretical. We have the society, we have people agree to the society, then we have this compact with the society, and then how does that work? Now, this would lend to the argument that Madison is making a case we have one people. But we don't really have that, and we never really had that. We never had one people, because he uses the people of the states. Now, he gives you a couple of points here. He says, number one, the majority has divided the sovereignty of the society by actually dividing the society itself into distinct societies, equally sovereign. So the majority of the society, of this one people, has divided it out into states. But that's not what we had. We had the people of the states from the bottom up. So he's making kind of a one people argument here that is not in line with how this would work. He would actually kind of lend into James Wilson's argument here that we had one people and the people then divided themselves into states and societies. But that's not the way it happened. It came the other way around. The people made the states from the bottom up, not from the will. I mean, Virginia had no control over Massachusetts. So he says, of this operation, we have, at, we have before us examples in the separation of Kentucky from Virginia and Maine from Massachusetts, events which were never supposed to require unanimous consent of the individuals concerned. In the case of naturalization, a new member is added to the so social compact, not only with a unanimous consent of the members, but by a majority of the governing body deriving its powers from a majority of the individual parties to the social compact. So he's saying, you know where we have an example of this? is the states. We created the state of Kentucky out of the state of Virginia, and the state of Maine out of the state of Massachusetts. But the thing is, right, so the people from this area moved to this area and said, we're now a state. We're a state here. They haven't really divided the sovereignty out. Massachusetts didn't divide its sovereignty. It maintained its sovereignty. The people moved to this area and said, we are now a state in this area. That's what happened there. It didn't divide the sovereignty of Virginia or of Massachusetts. It created a new sovereignty. And you say, well, this is kind of political society. They're doing this. But the people move from here to here. So that's important. He says, as in those cases just mentioned, one sovereignty was divided into two, but it wasn't. But dividing one state into two states. So it will not be denied that two states equally sovereign might be incorporated into one by the voluntary and joint act of the majorities only in each. But that's not what happened there, right? So they divided. They didn't divide a sovereignty. Massachusetts wasn't divided. Virginia wasn't divided. 
You just had people from Virginia move to where Kentucky is, and they created a state because they're sovereign there, and they could do it. Virginia's sovereignty wasn't divided. Massachusetts's sovereignty wasn't divided. This is where he's making, and this argument doesn't make any sense. You had a new state created, and this is the Calhounian position. Well, you didn't really divide sovereignty, did you? You created a new sovereignty from the people moving there into a new sovereign state. These people of this state are now sovereign. The Constitution of the U.S. has itself provided for such a contingency. And if two states could thus incorporate themselves into one by mutual surrender of the entire sovereignty of each, why might not a partial incorporation by a partial surrender of sovereignty be equally practicable, if equally eligible? And if this could be done by two states, why not by 20 or more? So he's saying, I mean, this is, this is what we've done, right? We created, if two states could thus incorporate themselves into one by mutual surrender of their entire sovereignty, right? Well, then why not a partial incorporation by a partial surrender of sovereignty? And he's saying this is what happened. There's a partial surrender of sovereignty here. And, and why couldn't you do that? Well, because you can't. Because you didn't really have any kind of surrender of sovereignty from Virginia to Kentucky. Virginia's allowing that that area of its borders to be carved out for a new state for the people of the state there. They're allowing the border to be carved. But they're not saying they've relinquished any sovereignty. And the people of Kentucky are now the people of Kentucky in those borders, right? So it created not a new sovereignty. The people are still sovereign there, but it's a new state. We know that this is how they argued it, in the equal states and equal footing with the existing states, etc., etc. He's saying a division of sovereignty is in fact illustrated by the exchange of sovereign rights often involved in treaties between independent nations, and still more in the several confederacies which have existed, in part, particularly in that which preceded the present Constitution of the United States. Certain it is that the Constitutional Compact of the U.S. has allotted the supreme powers of government partially to the U-States by special grants, partly to the individual states by general reservations, and if sovereignty be in its nature divisible, the true question to be decided is where, whether the allotment has been made by the competent authority. So he's saying we, we've certain the Constitution has divided the supreme powers for the government, partly the U.S. states by special grants and partly the individual states by general reservations. So because reserve powers, they're sovereign there, and we have grants to the central authority that they're sovereign there. So I mean, he would, he would argue against the people that say there is no state sovereignty, it doesn't exist. He would say, well, of course it does, because you have reserved powers. And then to the people who would say, well, there's no sovereignty in the U.S., well, of course there is, because there's supremacy and certain powers. But that's not really a sovereignty. That's a granted power. You can do these things. And by granting it, of course, you can always rescind that. So who really does have the sovereignty is Calhoun's position. The people of the states always have it. They haven't... They haven't lost any of it. They always have it. You cannot divide it then. There is no sovereignty in the center. The people of the states have given that powers to do these things for them collectively, which they would not do themselves individually. But it doesn't mean they can't, and they can't resume those powers. This is where Madison, again, is kind of full of it. And he says, and the question is answered by the fact that it was an act of the majority of the people in each state in their highest sovereign capacity, equivalent to unanimous act of the people composing the state in that capacity. So he's saying the Constitution is a compact between the people of the states. In each state, not the aggregate, but in each state, it's a compact between the states. 
That's what he means by that. It is a compact between states, and the people make the states. It is so difficult to argue intelligibly concerning the compound system of government in the U.S. without admitting the divisibility of sovereignty. That the idea of sovereignty as divided between the Union and the members composing the Union forces itself into the view and even into the language of those most strenuously contending for the unity and indivisibility of the moral being created by the social compact. So let me get this, let me say this again. It's difficult to argue intelligibly concerning the compound system of government, we have a saying federalism, in the U.S. without admitting the divisibility of sovereignty, that the idea of sovereignty is divided between the union and the members composing of the union, forces itself into the view, and even into the language, of those most strenuously contending for the unity and indivisibility of the moral being created by the, formed by the social compact. So he's almost coming down there, it seems, that he's siding with people like Webster and Marshall and others, that they're, you know, we have to almost adopt their language. Quote, for security against oppression from abroad, we look to the sovereign power of the U.S. to be exerted according to the Compact of Union. For security against oppression from within or domestic oppression, we look to the sovereign power of the state. Now all sovereignties are equal. The sovereignty of the state is equal to that of the union, for the sovereignty of each is but a moral person. That of the state and that of the union are each a moral person, and in that respect, precisely equal. These are the words in a speech which was, which more than any other has analyzed and elaborated this particular subject, and they express the view of it finally taken by the speaker, notwithstanding the previous introductory one in which he says, quote, the states whilst the constitution of the U.S. were forming were not even shorn of any of their sovereign power by the process. So this is Mr. Rowan of Kentucky, right? It's not Daniel Webster or somebody else. But he's saying, look, we have sovereign power of the U.S. be exercised according to the compact of the Union. So that's oppression from without, or oppression from abroad, and then we have oppression from within. So he's describing it. This is a, a representative from Kentucky that's making this point. This is... Um, but he's saying that they didn't they weren't shorn of sovereignty. They didn't lose their sovereignty. When they formed the Constitution, he says they were not shorn of any of their sovereign power by the process. So he's kind of saying this, you know, Rowan of Kentucky is is going in a halfway house here in some ways, but he agrees with it, right? He says that a sovereignty would be lost and converted into a vassalage if subjected to a foreign sovereignty over which it had no control and which it had no participation is clear and certain. But for otherwise, is a surrender of portions of sovereignty by compacts among sovereign communities, making the surrender equal and reciprocal, and of course giving to each as much as is taken from it. So we don't have a vassalage. We don't really have a loss. We've just kind of divided sovereignty up here. This is argument for divided sovereignty. Again, I think he's missing the point. You can't really divide sovereignty. You haven't created a new sovereign. You've created a voice of the people of the states by creating the central authority. And that central authority is never really sovereign. It has the voice of the people through a majority, yes, of the states as a community. But this is through goodwill. This is how Washington described it. It's through goodwill alone that this compact is maintained. Mutual concessions. And if any party decides not to do that, it isn't really a compact anymore. Of all free governments, compact is the basis and the essence, and it is fortunate that the powers of government, supreme as well as subordinate, can be so molded and, distri and distribu distributed excuse me, 
so compounded and divided by those on whom they are to operate as will be most suitable to their conditions and best guard their freedom and best provide for their safety and happiness. Compact is the basis and the essence of free government. Compact. So he's saying we have a compact, right? Compact between the people of the states and they created this. He's saying a sovereign authority. You can divide that sovereignty out. The term he's saying is irrelevant. It's just powers. We're talking about powers here. These are the powers. And so because they're powers, they have sovereign powers, et cetera, et cetera. These are what sovereignties would do. So that's Madison's position. Again, he doesn't really say that the uh, people of the states aren't sovereign. He's just saying they gave some sovereign powers to the censure. And so that has sovereignty. But he does say that there can be a dissolution and that the states would resume their sovereignty. That's the, I mean, he does say that. So uh, I think Madison is being a, a little bit short-sighted in what's happening here in this divided sovereignty argument. He's gonna, it's his hill he's going to die on because he came up with this. So this is his thing. And other people have believed it. Other people have argued for it. Calhoun's position, I think, is stronger. That the sovereignty cannot be divided. It can't be surrendered. If you create a new state, you haven't divided sovereignty. These people are still sovereign. They create a state. So that state is now sovereign because of the borders of it. This is where the people are. You just have sovereignty there. Virginia didn't lose sovereignty. Massachusetts didn't divide sovereignty. You didn't do any of that. The people have always been sovereign. And the people of that state, the people of this state. The central authority can never do any of that. That's why it's never sovereign. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.